This is a QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast. Dr Justin Chapman knew exactly what he wanted to do with his life. And that was being an atomic physicist. Turns out it wasn't what he wanted to do. And he made a really pretty brave and scary decision. And the results of which now give hope to millions of Australians living with mental health issues. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Thanks so much, Claire. What appealed to you originally about being an atomic physicist? Um, well, I loved physics and mathematics. Uh, I sort of was a bit obsessed with it in high school. Went and did a degree in photonics and nanoscience, got a great exposure to a variety of science and engineering and, and mathematics fields. I guess it was just one of those things that I had a real passion for at the time. Um, you know, science uh, infiltrates our life, improves quality of life in many ways. And through you know, research, I was hoping it would uh, address some of the key problems in society. Um, but yeah, after I, I guess I did my PhD uh, for about two years, spent all day in a dark lab uh, messing with lasers. And it sounds romantic. It looks very uh, attractive on Big Bang Theory or something like that. <laughs> I really felt like I needed to go out and do something in the sunlight in the real world. Um, I mean, I had a really bad lower back injury, so that was something that was really getting me down at the same time, as I guess just generally not being very good at my job. I broke too many things in the lab and um, you know, I wasn't performing because my heart just wasn't in it anymore. And I wanted to help find out how I could help my own lower back injury. And so I became a personal trainer. And then from there, I started working with people with mental health issues. And I just saw such an amazing impact that something so simple as one-on-one exercise instruction can have on people's lives. It's something that a lot of people take for granted. And then if you offer that to people who just don't have the means to employ someone or hire it for themselves. And you ended up at the PCYC. Yeah, that's right. So I started doing personal training programs for people with severe mental illness through the public health service here in Metro North in Brisbane and just saw it had such a valuable impact. And so I started looking for other places to work as a personal trainer in mental health and formed a bit of a partnership with PCYC Queensland who have completely supported the program um, since its inception to where it is now. What were you seeing there that made you so passionate about this change? Um, So at the time, I mean, I wasn't doing any real robust evaluation. That came after my PhD when I learned a lot of the methodological skills um, in epidemiological research and public health intervention research. Um, But it was really just the people's attitudes towards themselves changed. Interacting with people uh, in an informal environment using what could be considered a therapy, even though you know, we never thought of it as a therapy, uh, in an informal way had such therapeutic and clinical outcomes to the way people saw themselves and their potential. And so that was one of the most interesting things is that even though people's fitness might have improved, um, they started thinking, well, actually, I did pretty all right at this. So how about I go and volunteer or try and do a course? Um, so it really generalised to other aspects of their life. How quickly did that happen? Um, look, over the course of weeks, probably I saw people on average for around about 12 weeks, give or take, depending on how long they could and wanted to stay with the program. Um, but the benefits start to be received and experienced quite quickly. The benefits can be as simple as feeling really good after exercise because it just gave them time out away from their thoughts to start thinking about something different be in a different group, a different venue, and then they go home and uh, feel really calm and relaxed that day. And then over a period of weeks, that builds and they start thinking about what else they could experience that's positive. What was the evidence at the time? 
I guess it, it sort of goes back to the 1950s, the first real epidemiological evidence, so population-wide studies on the impact of physical activity for health. One of the very key studies came out of London where they looked at bus drivers. Uh, at the time, they had bus drivers that were conductors who walked up and down stairs all day selling tickets and then the drivers who sat all day uh, driving the bus. And they had a look at all the bus drivers, so they come from a very similar or the same socioeconomic background, and the conductors who did a lot of physical activity throughout the day, but they had a lower risk of cardiac events generally, and the drivers had a higher risk of fatal cardiac events. So that was really the first epidemiological evidence that showed physical activity has a very real and long-term impact on our health and quality of life. And then from there, you know, we've um, done much greater studies uh, around physical health and mental health and well-being and general happiness. Um, so a lot of the uh, Scandinavian countries, some of the happiest places in the world, they all have higher physical activity. Uh, and that's not just the, the only indicator, of course. There are governments that are you know, of greater equality in terms of their health and societal systems. But physical activity and movement is so integral to general quality of life and happiness. So you went on to do a PhD and started this research. So what did your research look at and what did you find? I am still fairly early career, so I've done about the last five years of research in this area. Uh, we've just completed one randomised control trial, and don't underestimate how much effort and time it takes to do a randomised control trial. Dealing with people and trying to recruit you know, for people with severe mental illness through public hospital services, uh, it takes a lot of effort to get that sufficient group to actually show any kind of meaningful change. So we've just completed one about behaviour change. And we have shown that people with severe mental illness can respond very positively to behaviour change techniques for physical activity. So we did motivational coaching, we gave people fitness trackers, we just had weekly groups for eight weeks, helping talk through the barriers and challenges and enablers and the benefits of physical activity. And we measured their physical movement over that eight weeks. And so people did improve over that time. And we compared it with a gym group that didn't have any motivational strategies. It was just an exercise physiologist providing fairly prescriptive exercise program. We gave them gym access um, so they had access to a venue and it didn't have the same behaviour change as the motivational group. And we know that we need to do both of these things. We know that we need to give people access to exercise facilities and professional instruction, but it also needs to be combined with something personally engaging. This feeds into your understanding of the different types of motivation, doesn't mm. it? Yeah. So um, I wouldn't call myself an expert in motivation. Self-determination theory is mainly the one that talks about motivation on a spectrum, from externally motivated, where someone is telling you to do it, like a doctor is saying you need to do exercise for your health, or you're doing it for some kind of incentive. Like if I go to the gym five times a week, they'll give me a discount or something like that. So there's an external motivator. The next step up is introjected. So it's when people do something because they feel guilty or they're trying to avoid negative feelings of not doing it. We all know we need to exercise. I'm going to feel bad if I don't this week, so I might as well get out there and do, a, do my run. Those two generally aren't associated with longer-term behaviour change. So the next step up are things like identified and integrated motivation, which is when you start to really identify with the outcomes of the activity, and then you integrate the values of that activity into your everyday life and your personality. What's an example of that? So if I do football, if I, I'm a footballer, you know, I love the, the mateship involved with football and I love keeping fit, it would be identified, so you're identifying with the outcome. And then you integrate that when you start saying, I am a footballer and this is part of who I am. And then the next step up from there is intrinsic. You have all those other 
integrated and identified forms of motivation as well, but you're primarily doing the activity for the love and the enjoyment and you get really immersed in the activity. That's the one you want? Uh, yes, but um, all motivation is, is beneficial. So even if someone doesn't want to do something and then they might start because the doctor's telling them or their family's telling them, that gives them an opportunity to experience the benefits. So when they start going to a group, you know, they're afraid in a lot of situations. They're very nervous. They're um, feeling social anxiety. They've never exercised before. They've never stepped into a gym. But then they realise that the people there aren't that bad. And then they realise they feel a bit better after the session in a few weeks' time, they actually feel stronger, they can walk up the steps without getting puffed, and then that's when they start to really identify with the outcome. And then over time, they start to internalise that more, and it becomes integrated into their identity, and then they start to love it. So wherever you start, you do need to hope uh, for a longer-term behaviour change that you're progressing into more self-determined motivation, and that's related to longer-term adoption. Justin, is there a bit of a misconception that motivation to exercise is difficult for people with mental health issues? Yes and no. So motivation is definitely difficult for everyone to begin with. You know, when I worked commercially as a personal trainer, I found it really difficult to motivate people who are actually paying for the service to come along consistently and put good effort into their sessions. When you have mental health issues such as depression, major depression, I work a lot with people with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder and anxiety generally, they have a lot of other factors that impact their motivation and their capability to get out and do the behaviour. You know, someone with major depression once said, well, look, you want me to get out and go for a walk, but I can't even get out of the bed. Yeah. So yeah, a lack of volition, uh, avolition is one of the symptoms of people with depressive symptoms. And so it does take a lot of practical support. Engaging this group of people with mental health issues takes some very targeted approaches, but they're the group that can get the greatest benefits in many ways. Because GPs and healthcare people are so busy with what they're doing, there's nobody that can really take on this. People's case files are so big and heaving that mm. it's really difficult to get to that point. Is that right? Yeah. So I've got quite a diverse background now. I'm not only in my a researcher, but I've worked in health services as a change manager in some ways. I developed uh, service development initiatives and saw them implemented. I've worked in the Department of Health at a strategic level, uh, doing uh, policy position statements and getting a real good insight into funding and what determines outcomes at the front lines. Really, it is that high-level decision that needs to be made. The system is so fragmented that it actually results in lower quality of life, shorter life expectancy of patients because they can't navigate through the system and get the right care at the right time. It's just as fragmented for clinicians and staff working on the front lines. I think people who care for others in those roles, they get into it for very altruistic and good reasons. But then the system, it's in many ways bureaucratic and for good reasons on its own as well. I mean, we need to monitor. We need to be sure that public money is being used for the benefit of the community. And we do that through quanti quantitative measures. But when the funding systems uh, actually result in divergent care between physical and mental health and doesn't support interventions and programs that have evidenced quality outcomes, makes it really difficult to make any change on a systemic and lasting level. You did the research and you got funding to start a program, which was really fascinating and has had some extraordinary results. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, for sure. So in many ways, I've had a lot of success and it's because I've had a lot of support from partners. PCYC Queensland have been the primary driver of the actual implementation on the ground. So we started a program called Healthy Bodies, Healthy Minds. 
with the Public Mental Health Service here and a consortium of non-government community organisations. And PCYC was the uh, organisation that delivered it. And so through PCYC, we were able to reach over 600 people over the last five years, raise over a million dollars to implement these programs across Queensland, right up to North Queensland. And we've had a lot of success. And this is where some of the research has shown great results. So we've shown that an eight-week program like this, and it's better the longer the program is, the more you can engage people, but it improves quality of life, it improves people's recovery and self-perceptions and self-evaluation, it reduces psychological distress and depression, and it improves a sense of belonging. And these are all really important things, not just generally for our quality of life and general functioning, but particularly in a COVID environment where people are feeling more isolated than ever. We need programs like this to improve some community connection. So what did the participants do? Yeah, so in the, um, in the program, participants were able to uh, get involved if they had a diagnosed mental health issue. It could be long-term or short-term, and they just get a referral into the program at PCYC, and they're able to do an ongoing once-per-week exercise program with an exercise physiologist. Well, that would normally be pretty expensive. That's right, and so this one in particular is fully funded by the North Queensland Primary Health Network. It does cover the spectrum of prevention because we're able to get people involved who are being referred straight from their GP as well as really help people get back up into a healthy lifestyle who have been dealing with severe mental illness for a long period of time. We allow people to sort of be involved as much as they want. So it's a once per week exercise program. We do include some nutritional component to it with a dietitian when we have funding available. It's a group based at the PCYC. We take people through and help them understand how to use gym equipment, the benefits of exercise, and then over 8, 16, 24 weeks, people are able to be involved for as long as they like. They can start to also volunteer if they want as peer workers and support other people in the program as well. Early results are pretty exciting. Very exciting, and particularly the qualitative feedback. So when we ask people what um, benefits they get from it, it's a range of feedback from this program has saved my life, I can't believe it's you know nowhere else, to it's really just helped me get back on track. It's a little bit harder because you looked at nutrition, you tried to support nutrition as well, but self-reporting, that makes it a little bit tricky to get data on really, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, and it also depends on where we're getting the funding from. So when we were delivering the programs under the National Disability Insurance Scheme, we were able to really integrate a dietitian into the program because they were supported by the funding but also because it's a program, it's a community program, we don't want to overburden people with assessments. And so the way we evaluated the nutritional component was about people's attitudes toward eating rather than exactly what they're eating every day, which can be pretty onerous to report. So what do these results tell you that could happen in the future? Um, So we know that this kind of program works. It's very beneficial to people. It has very meaningful outcomes for them personally. But the next step is really to take it to the next level and show the impact financially on the service. And there are a lot of different ways we can look at the economic impact of exercise and the improvements in quality of life that people experience. But it does need a very large trial to do that. You know, we need multiple sites involved, we need different levels of the intervention and we need pretty robust economic outcomes to then show that this improvement in quality of life reduced hospital readmission rates mm-hmm. or improved their ability to go out and get a job. So that kind of evidence is what we really need next to advocate for government to support this on the longer term. You weren't just looking at people with depression. Yeah, that's right. And mainly um, people who were receiving public mental health services. And I guess the difference there... 
when people are at the point of receiving public mental health services, they're usually at such an acute state of psychological distress before the public service will accept them as a patient. And that's not a fault of the service. It's, it's really um, an outcome of the service being pretty overburdened with the, the demand for mental health support, that people need to be in a pretty acute stage of distress before they can receive this publicly funded service. And so that includes people with severe mental illnesses that affect people in the long term, such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Uh, and people with very um, major depression. You said that they often exercise as part of a group. Were you able to gauge that that activity together with people experiencing the same things as them was really useful? Yeah, definitely. One of the um, first program evaluations we did with an evaluation lens, you know, we weren't just getting people in and asking them. We did try to get surveys and proper qualitative interviews with the thematic analysis behind it, showed that there were three main components to their engagement and their benefit One was the venue, so a welcoming venue where people feel comfortable. Um, The last time I was at a gym, I think I saw someone with giant guns and uh, very attractive ladies in Lorna Janes or something like that. That's not really an accessible environment for everyone, particularly people who feel social anxiety. They have body image issues and they're just not very confident in exercising. Very intimidating space. So the venue is essential and something like the PCYC, which is a not-for-profit organisation, the participants found that a very welcoming space to come and feel comfortable. So that was one. The group was also a very important part of people's engagement. The fact that it was a group of people with mental health issues made people feel comfortable straight away. They knew that everybody had some kind of intuitive understanding of what everybody else had experienced and was experiencing And also the facilitation style of the person who's leading the group. So the person who's there instructing people, giving the exercises, providing motivation, encouragement and support is absolutely essential. So when we did the programs, we had a different personal trainer at every venue delivering it. And I was there providing cohesion and just a bit of moral support. And that made such a big difference because when there was a PT that had a different style, like a bit more authoritarian or, you know, boot camp type style, that really put people off, but they were still there together, knowing that we can go out for a coffee afterwards and have a chat and debrief. So that kind of leadership is essential. And really, it just requires someone with a bit of an intuitive understanding of what being person-centered means. You don't have to be a clinician. If you know how to engage people personally, uh, helps people feel comfortable and stick with something like this. It's so necessary. Anybody, even those not struggling with mental health, knows how much better you feel when you go out and do some exercise. So it just makes such good sense, given that even people not struggling with mental health issues feel so much better when they can integrate exercise in their life. Who needs to get on board with this? Um, So I think it needs to become a priority at a high level. Um, Given the diverse benefits that exercise can have, it needs to be integrated into current service models. So it's not as though we need a separate funding stream. We just need you know, something like the adult head-to-health models that are about to be funded to include an exercise and nutrition component to start addressing the lifestyle factors of our quality of life and mental health. In the future, if you are diagnosed with a mental health issue, then this would absolutely be part of your treatment. Here is your access to this. Yeah, exactly. So it should definitely be an access and an option. And there should be an exercise physiologist, some kind of peer support to help people get engaged and involved. And I think that's particularly important because we know that medications, um, psychiatric medications such as antipsychotic medications, have a very direct negative impact on metabolic health. 
that results in long-term health conditions, putting on weight, mm. substantial amount of weight, and then people start ne- needing to take other medications to control those side effects. So exercise is one of those things that can reduce and prevent those side effects. So there is a moral obligation as well of services to be addressing this. Because just the side effects of medication are horrific in some cases. Yeah, um, and there are many factors that uh, contribute to the poor health outcomes of people with mental illness. So we know that people with mental health issues often have a history of um, some kind of traumatic experience in their life that has caused psychological distress. They can often come from a background of disadvantage, which contributes to psychological distress. The fragmentation of the mental and physical health um, healthcare system can lead to not receiving the right care at the right time, then leads to conditions going undetected. And so all these factors lead into people with mental health issues having a higher risk of chronic disease, such as a two to three times higher risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, osteoporosis, all these conditions that have a lot of preventable and modifiable factors such as exercise and nutrition and it leads to a shorter life expectancy of 10 to 20 years. From that perspective we really do need to be doing something about it. It's so exciting Justin and it's really only early days in your research and if you'd like to follow Dr Justin Chapman or donate to his research go to qimrberghofer.edu.au. We'll follow closely. Thanks so much Justin. Thank you Claire.